Well, good morning. If you turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 49, and the children can be dismissed if there's anybody, any children who haven't been dismissed yet. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 49. We've been in a series in the book of Genesis, um, and we're going to look at the prophecy that, Ju- that Jacob uh, has towards his sons. He blesses his sons when he's about to pass away. And we're going to look at that prophecy, and then we're going to look at the fulfillment of that prophecy, and we're going to focus our attention in the book of Matthew. But we're going to start at Genesis chapter 49, verse 8. Jacob says to his son Judah, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Now if you turn in the to the book of Matthew, chapter 21. And we're going to see how the scepter does not depart from Judah. And we're going to see how Jesus, the king, enters into Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 21, starting at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee. So what's happening in this passage may be hard for us to identify with. We don't really have parades or processions like this anymore. Uh, The closest parallel that I can think of that we might be able to identify with, well, maybe not people from Buffalo, but other people might be able to identify, is a Super Bowl parade or a Stanley Cup parade. And in a Super Bowl parade, we have some pictures up there. I've never actually been to one, but I understand it's a pretty ruckus affair. People come out with their jerseys and they're screaming and yelling. And what happens is the victors, so to speak, are paraded through the city. The winning team is paraded through the city. And usually what's happening is they're carrying with them the spoils of war, so to speak, or their trophy. Now in the ancient world, they had these processions. They had religious processions and they had military processions. In the military processions, what would happen was just that. The victors would be paraded through the city and everyone would be cheering and rejoicing their victory. 
And sometimes, often, they would be carrying behind them the prisoners or the spoils of war. Just like a, somebody, a Super Bowl champion might hold up a Lombardi trophy, the victors would be carrying with them the prisoners that they had achieved from the battle. Now in this passage we're looking at today, Jesus is being paraded through the gates of Jerusalem. Apparently a crowd has been following him for some time. And the text tells us that two of his disciples were sent before him to uh, get a donkey for him to ride on. And so they go and get a donkey in kind of perhaps a miraculous way. They just go and get this donkey and Jesus says, if anyone asks you, tell them that the Lord has need of it. So they get this donkey And then they take their clothing and they put it on top of the donkey. And it says many in the crowd took their cloaks off and they put it on the ground. That's really interesting because back in in that day and age, clothing was more or less made by hand. And it was very expensive. Sometimes people might only have one cloak. Maybe some people didn't even have a cloak. It wasn't like today where you could go to Walmart or the Salvation Army and get a, a shirt or a coat for maybe $10 or $20. These are really expensive items, and yet they're taking them off of their backs, putting them down on the dusty ground, and allowing a donkey to walk over them. It indicates, scholars tell us, that they were submitting to Jesus. They were acknowledging his authority, acknowledging him as a king. It says also that they were putting branches on the ground, palm branches. These palm branches represented uh, Jewish nationalism and victory. It was a sign of great pride in their country. And so we see that they bestow on Jesus a kingly status. But not only do they bestow on him a kingly status, but they see him as the Messiah who was to come. In the Old Testament, there was, there's echoes and promises that there would be one who would come who would rescue his people. And they believe that this Jesus is that man. The Jews would often quote, Uh, during the Passover from the Hallel, which was uh, Psalm 113 to 118. And Passover is about to begin, and so these words of of these Psalms were probably on their minds. And they ascribed these words of the Psalms to Jesus. Psalm 18 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They shout that out. They refer to him as the son of David, the great king who reigned in Jerusalem. They cry out, Hosanna, which means save us. Or it also can be used as an expression of rejoicing. They acknowledge him as the great king and the great Messiah who was to come. But while they acknowledge him as that great king and while they're rejoicing, while pandemonium is breaking out in Jerusalem, just a few days later, the crowd who was crying out, save us, Hosanna, is crying out, crucify him crucify him. So what changed for this crowd? What changed for people from Sunday when he enters into Jerusalem to Friday when he's crucified? What changed? What would cause this turn of events? Well, there's a dramatic psychological scientific principle that I think helps illustrate what maybe has happened here. There's this principle called the confirmation bias. And the confirmation bias goes like this. If you believe something to be true and hold to something to be true, you have a tendency to try to find evidence to support your view. Now this can happen in a number of different settings. We're probably all guilty of it to some extent. 
It happens to investors where sometimes investors will uh, take a liking to a particular stock and then they'll find evidence to support their liking. Because they like that specific stock, they'll find evidence and minimize anything that's maybe negative about that stock. Sometimes students will do it. They'll write a paper and they'll only look up sources that support their ideas, nothing that's opposed to their ideas. We tend to seek out evidence to support our ideas, maybe even make up evidence to support our ideas. One of the most dramatic examples I could find was uh, the discovery of something called N-rays. Now, during the end of the 19th century, it was a time of great scientific discoveries. Uh, X-rays were discovered, polonium was discovered, radium was discovered. Uh, The idea of radioactivity was discovered. Uh, The foundation for quantum physics was laid. It was a time of great discovery, a time of great scientific progress where the scientific world was just kind of buzzing with all that was happening. And there was a specific professor, and his his name was Rene Blondelot. He was a well-respected professor at the University of Nancy in France, and he was a member of the French Academy of Science. And he was doing some research on these X, X-rays. And while he was doing these, this research, he saw this kind of flash of light. And he theorized that this flash of light was a different kind of ray called an N-ray. And so he did all these different studies. And according to one source, there were 120 other scientists who supported his theory. And according to one source, there were 300 journal articles that were written about these N-rays. He theorized that these N-rays came from the sun and they could be stored in different objects, that even human beings themselves could give off these N-rays. But not everybody was convinced. There were some notable scientists who were skeptical, especially given the fact that that Blondelot said that these rays were temporary and that you could only kind of see them out of the corner of your eye if you look carefully. So one particular skeptic, uh, and his name was Robert Wood, visited Blondelot's lab over in France. Robert Wood was from the United States. And so he goes over to his lab and is kind of observing him and whatnot. And Blondelot has this prism, and he's shining this light through the prism. And he believed that as the light shined through the prism, it would separate and create these N, N uh, waves. And so he's, it's all dark, and there's just this light shining through the prism, and he's measuring these N, N waves. In the meantime, Wood goes, without Blondelot knowing, and he takes away the prism. And still, Blondelot is on the wall measuring these N rays, even though the source of the N-rays is taken away. Soon Wood published an article uh, suggesting that it was all a fabrication, that these N-rays didn't actually exist. And later scientific studies determined that there was no such thing as an N-ray. But he had seen something at the beginning. He'd seen a flash of light. And there were so many discoveries that were happening that he wanted it to be true so much that he interpreted evidence in a certain way and maybe even made up evidence to support his view. Now, did he, did he just, you know, was he trying to lie to people? Was he trying to scam people? Probably not. But he believed it so strongly that he only looked at evidence that supported his view. 
And in the end, he was basically shamed because of that grave error that he made. It's an example of the confirmation bias. And I think that's, in a sense, what many people in the crowd are doing in regards to Jesus initially. They see Jesus as a confirmation of their way of life. Now, Jesus is entering into the city of David to establish his kingship. At that time, Israel doesn't have its own authority. It's under the governorship of Rome. And the crowd likely believed that Jesus was this great warrior who had come to rescue them from the Romans, to give them their way of life back, to restore Israel to its former glory. And so here they are watching Jesus enter into Jerusalem, and in many ways, they were meeting, that Jesus was meeting their expectations. He was confirming their way of life. He was confirming their beliefs. They believed they were going to be vindicated. Finally, Judaism was going to reign in Israel once again. They were going to return to their glory days. Their way of life would be established. And Jesus entering into Jerusalem is a confirmation of those beliefs. But Jesus hasn't come to confirm their way of life. He's come to change their way of life. See, he enters into Jerusalem as this Messiah who they see as a confirmation of their way of life. But Monday... He enters into the temple and he overthrows the money changers. He says, you've made my house a den of iniquity when it should be a house of prayer. He hasn't come just to confirm their way of life, to confirm their expectations. He's come to change their way of life. And we see that throughout the book of Matthew and throughout the teachings of Jesus. Jesus upends people's expectations. He's a different sort of king. We see in the Uh, Sermon on the Mount, which some have called a kingdom manifesto, that Jesus redefines what it means to be blessed or happy. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And In that same sermon, Jesus makes a number of you have heard statements. You have heard this, but I tell you this. You have heard your rabbis explain it this way, but I'm telling you that this is the way that you should understand it. He says, you've heard that it was said in the days of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says, you have heard it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He says, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. He upends their expectations. He changes their perspective. And I don't think that was a message that a lot of people wanted to hear. I don't think that was the message that the crowds wanted to hear. I think they wanted to hear, you guys are doing a great job. Just keep up the good work and I'm going to come and I'm going to defeat the Romans. I'm going to put you into power once again and I'm going to establish your way of life. That's what they wanted to hear. That's why they see Jesus as a confirmation of that when he enters into Jerusalem. Here he is. He's going to fix everything and establish our way of life. But Jesus will have none of that. Jesus 
tells those he comes into contact with that they're broken, that they're in need of healing, and that he can make them new. But we would often rather have Jesus confirm our way of life than to change our way of life. We'd often rather have Jesus confirm our way of life than to change our way of life. And this kind of idea of confirmation has kind of seeped into our culture from a number of different directions. In New York Magazine, Paul Bronson says this, Since the 1969 publication of The Psychology of Self-Esteem, in which Nathaniel Brandon opined that self-esteem was the single most important facet of a person, the belief that one must do whatever he can to achieve positive self-esteem has become a movement with broad societal effects. Anything potentially damaging to kids' self-esteem was axed. Competitions were frowned upon. Soccer coaches stopped counting goals and handed out trophies to everyone. Teachers threw out their red pencils. Criticism was replaced with ubiquitous, even undeserved praise. Confirmation, not change. According to a 2011 study, this has seeped into the minds of college students also. According to USA Today reporting on that study, sex, booze, or money just can't compare with the jolt of self-esteem. The lead study, author of the study said, we looked at all the things college students love and they love self-esteem more. The researchers used two separate studies of 280, 282 students in Ohio and New York that measured the students' desire for a number of goals, receiving praise, engaging in sex, drinking alcohol, getting a paycheck, eating their favorite food, or seeing their best friend. The the results pointed to one clear desire. University students wanted experiences that would help boost their self-esteem, such as receiving a compliment or getting a good grade. According to Bob Corsaro, a sociologist who was also cited in the article, more and more kids are being raised with high expectations. It creates this sense of entitlement. Brad Bushman concludes, in general, I think self-esteem, though it feels good for the individual, is harmful to society, especially if it goes over the top and becomes narcissism. 1950, Gallup uh, organization conducted a poll of high school seniors, and and they asked high school seniors, do you believe that you're a very important person? In 1950, 12% of people said yes. In 2005, 80% of students said yes. Time magazine asked Americans, are you in the top 1% of earners? 19% of people said that they were in the top 1% of earners in the country. Americans score 25th in the world in math, but if you ask Americans, are you really good in math, they often say yes. According to David Brooks, we're number one in the world at thinking we're really good at math. The center of our public consciousness has become our own self-esteem. It has become our self. It's all about confirming ourself. And you'll read a lot of popular advice or popular religion that will teach that you just got to believe that you have it within yourself. You just got to believe that you're enough. You just got to believe that you're good. It's even kind of seeped into American religion, American Christianity. We want a religion that tells us that we're okay, that we're good. We want a religion that confirms us rather than a religion that changes us. Just a 
few, just a few days ago, popular pastor in the United States uh, tweeted this on his Twitter. Never say any th- negative things about yourself. We, ne- we have enough in life against us already. Don't be against yourself. Never say anything negative about yourself. The Bible tells us that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Bible tells us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us as we've looked through the book of Genesis that even the people who were the kind of heroes of faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, even these heroes had flaws. Even they were broken in need of redemption. Don't ever say anything bad about yourself. You're all right. You've got it all under control. You don't need to change. We'd often rather have Jesus confirm us than to change us. But Jesus won't do that. He won't simply confirm our way of life because He knows that our way of life ultimately will lead us to destruction. And He loves us too much to leave us that way. He loves us too much to leave us to our own devices. I mean, it's amazing when we see popular portrayals of Jesus in movies and television shows. Jesus is this really soft-spoken person. He would never offend anybody. He has blonde hair, blue eyes, really effeminate, so to speak. He'd never say anything harsh or, or anything to offend anybody. Now, Jesus, of course, was humble. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a horse, which is the instrument of war. He was gracious. He was full of love. But he also challenged people. If you've never read the book of Matthew, or if you haven't read it in a while, I'd encourage you to read it. And it might surprise you just how challenging Jesus is to the people around him. He's confrontational. He's not someone who just comes and tells people what they want to hear because he loves them too much to tell them what they want to hear. He tells them what they need to hear. Jesus is almost, it's almost like he's untamed. He's wild. He's undomesticated. And yet through it all, he shows his love and he shows his goodness. It's kind of like the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. C.S. Lewis was, of course, a strong believer. And he set up the characters to kind of, uh, kind of image Christ in some ways. And the, the character that imaged Christ was Aslan, the lion, and if you're not familiar with the story, the story, the kind of the basis of the story is there's these children uh, from England and they enter into this magical wardrobe which takes them to this kind of magical different world. Um, and so they come upon these two beavers' houses, two beavers that could talk, and they, they enter into their house. And they're, they're asking questions about this, per, this being called Aslan, who's a picture of Christ. Lucy, one of the children, asked, Is he a man? Mr. Beaver said, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I'll tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, one of the other children. I I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver said, That you will, dearie. 
And no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Lucy said, then, he isn't safe. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's a good. He's a king, I tell you. Jesus isn't safe, but he's good. We enter into a relationship with Christ and we will never stay the same. No part of our life is safe from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He'll upend our priorities, our values, our expectations. He'll change everything about us. If there's one thing Jesus is not, Jesus is not safe. But He is good. He is realistic. He knows what we need. Have you ever had somebody give you a compliment and maybe you appreciated the compliment, but you know it wasn't actually true about yourself? When I was first dating uh, Stephanie, um, she didn't, of course, know me that well, and I was kind of putting on my best face. You know, when you're first dating, you kind of put forward your best, put your foot, best foot forward. And I remember a couple times she complimented me about a couple things, and uh, you know, I just kind of thought to myself, if only she knew, you know. <laughs> and I was really grateful for the compliment, and it made me feel good, but. I kind of felt guilty too because I knew it wasn't really true of me. But then when she got to know me a little bit better, she started to see those things that maybe I was trying to hide at the beginning and she started to realize that those things weren't true. But yet still she loved me anyways. And that was much more powerful than if she would have just kept complimenting on me on things that were, she knew were not to be true. You know, I, don't, I didn't have a good example. And, but imagine, you know, I, I remember cleaning out my car and making sure everything was really clean. You know, cleaning my room and everything so that she would think I was neat. Now, she probably saw through that. So th- it's not a, a necessarily a true example. But, you know, imagine if she said, You're, you seem like a really neat and organized person. And I think that's, yeah, I am an organized person. I, everything's in the closet organized. <laughs> you know, and then we got married, and she realized I wasn't that neat and not organized. But imagine she kept telling me, oh, you're really neat. You're really organized as I have my clothes laying on the floor in the bedroom. Imagine she kept telling me that. I mean, it might feel, make me feel good, but eventually I would just tune it out because I knew it wasn't true. But when she understood that, and she knew it and still loved me anyways, it changes everything. And Jesus knows us. He understands us. He sees that we're broken. He's not going to confirm us in the way that we are. He's not going to compliment us on our sin and our brokenness. But he loves us enough to die for us, to change us, to make us new. Tim Keller writes this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. See, in processions, as I said, 
often the victors would go through the city and they would be leading the victims or the prisoners through the city. What's interesting about Jesus going through the city is that Jesus was both the victor and the victim. He was the victor and the prisoner. He was a great, victorious, and powerful king, but he'll achieve his victory at the cost of his life by humbling himself to the point of death. He would achieve victory, but his victory was not about removing Israel from its bondage to the Roman authorities, but about removing Israel from its bondage to sin. Jesus knows us, but he doesn't confirm us in, the way, in our own way of life. He loves us too much for that. He loves us enough to die for us, to enter into Jerusalem as the humble, victorious king, so that we might be changed, so that our way of life would be changed, and that we might spend forever in relationship with him. So let us not tame our God. Let us not domesticate our God. Let us not create a God for ourselves that always confirms us, that never speaks a word of rebuke, because the God that always confirms us will lead us to destruction. But let's bow down and worship before the King of kings and Lord of lords who loves us enough to change us. And let us cry out with open hands, Hosanna, save us now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you entered into the gates of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as a humble king, riding on a donkey, lowly in spirit. That you entered into Jerusalem ultimately to enter, to ultimately to pay the ultimate penalty for our sin on the cross. God, we thank you that you loved us so much that you refuse to leave us the way that we are. That you love us so much that you came to the earth to die for us, to make us new so that we might spend forever with you. God, I pray that we would acknowledge you for who you are. I pray that we would be cut to the heart by your word. That we would believe your word. That when we read your word, that it would be living and active in our hearts. That we would not just pick and choose scriptures that confirm us in our way of life, but that we would see you in all of your glory and that we would bow down and worship before you and cry out for you to rescue us and make us new. God, we thank you for all that you are for us. We thank you that you are the great and victorious King who is one day coming again to take us to be with you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.